We return to our studies out of Psalm 133, and we are asking the question, what is biblical unity like? And we need not go outside of this psalm in order to answer that question, because we have two beautiful similes that are just teeming with spiritual import and instruction to help us to understand what God is looking for, what he wants to see such that he can say, in a sense, himself with some exclamation, behold, here I see the beautiful biblical unity among brethren that his spirit has brought about. We're coming now to the second of the two similes, and it's given to us in verse 3 of Psalm 133. And indeed, it's primarily stated in the first two parts of this verse. You may know that one way in which sections of a verse are specified is they're divided by the punctuation points within the verse, and they're assigned letters. So you would have Psalm 133a, Psalm 133b, Psalm 133c and d, if one wanted to point to a particular phrase, or maybe even more to the point, to a particular arrangement of words that is just divided by a punctuation point. It's somewhat arbitrary, as you realize. It's not, it's not entirely necessarily a grammatical phrase, um, but I'm not wanting to get technical here. So the second simile is given to us in Psalm 133a and b, and the last statement within Psalm 133 is more of a conclusive remark, and we will look into that in due time as the Lord allows. The second simile has to do with Mount Hermon, and it reads as follows. Notice the word as. If you're wondering what beautiful biblical unity looks like, well, it's as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now, I want to stress that we are using the Word of God and these two similes to understand what biblical unity should look like, how to understand it, how it is brought about. That might sound like that's a trivial remark, but it by no means is, because much of the thinking that goes into the quest of unity is done outside of the Bible, and it is argued along the lines of social and more modern value systems, the, the values of humanity over against the values of God. And I dare say that these two similes, the first having to do with Aaron, and the second having to do with Mount Hermon, remain rather oblique, rather misunderstood, or not even sought in terms of striving to see what God is saying to us. And it reminds me of something that Martin Luther said three days before he died at the age of 62. He preached his last sermon in Eisleben, where he was born, and the text that he was preaching from was Matthew 11 and verse 25, 
where Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you have revealed them unto children. And this text afforded Luther the opportunity to emphasize a favorite theme of his, namely the reality that little children understand that they must listen to God directly in His Word, but the wise and the powerful bypass God's Word and go on to their own thoughts. And Luther had this remark as he was preaching his last sermon from this text. He says, This is the first point of this Gospel, that Christ and God the Father Himself are opposed to the wise. I might add, the worldly, the worldly wise. For they vex him greatly and set themselves up in God's place and want themselves to be masters. Everything that God does, they must improve so that there is no poorer, more insignificant and despised disciple on earth than God. He must be everybody's pupil. Everybody wants to be his teacher. Paraphrasing Luther so that the language and the ideas are perhaps more accessible to our generation, what Luther is saying is, if you would take your lead from what happens even within God's church, let alone the world, you would think that God must be the most stupid, unintelligent entity in the entire universe because everybody feels compelled to improve upon what God has already said. Instead of going to the Word of God, to Psalm 133, and paying attention to the similes that God has given to understand how unity should come about, men attempt to improve, as it were, upon the simplicity of the language and the ideas embedded in this text, and they come up with all of their fancy programs and all of their business-oriented ideas as to how to build something big and beautiful and impressive and claim some sort of anointing over it. Well, we're not going to do that, brothers and sisters. We're going to stay with the Word of God, and we're going to see what it teaches us. This is indeed staying with the hermeneutic value of intertextuality, we are listening to the ideas that God has developed and associated with one another within His Word, and we're asking ourselves within the confines and the limitations of the canon of Scripture, what is God saying to our hearts? We don't want to improve upon the idea because now it's the 21st century and we have to make it more current by going out of the Word to make it more current? No, if you needed to go outside of the Word, the Word of God, in order to apply Christianity in our time, then the world would have already ended because God's Word will not pass away until all is fulfilled. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, what I'm saying is if you think that when 
history unfolds and cultures change and we have a more modern spirit, etc. In order to reach our generation, we have to improve upon the language of the Bible. We can't speak about Aaron and his beard and the hierarchical structure of the Old Testament religious system. We can't speak of a mountain of all places in Israel or in Palestine, that land that the Israelis stole from the Palestinians. We can't use this sort of offensive language. We have to improve and use more accessible and current ideas. No, when you do that, you just develop your own religious form of unity over against what God is actually looking for. Allow me to indicate the association between the first two similes, that which is repeated, as it were, between the simile associated with Aaron and the simile associated with Hermon. By reading to you the comments of a Dr. William Kay, who was a British scholar and sometime missionary in Calcutta, India, he wrote the following in his commentary from the Hebrew text of the Psalms. He says, physically, Hermon was to Canaan what Aaron was ceremonially to Israel, its head and crown, from which the fertilizing stores of heaven descended over the land. For not only does the one great river of Palestine, the Jordan, issue from the roots of Hermon, but the giant mountain is constantly gathering and sending off clouds which float down even to southern Zion. I wish to add to his observation that there is a coordination between these two similes, which is one of the primary points that I'm going to seek to underscore for your hearts this afternoon. That indeed, there is not just an ascendental parallel between the two images, Aaron, Hermon, high priest, high place, but they function. The two pictures function in very much the same way and toward the same objective. And so I would add to the building of that case that the Hebrew word from which Hermon comes from means consecrated. And certainly Aaron in the image of the high priest is the image of something which is consecrated. Its modern name, sounding something like Jabel Eshik, means chief of the mountains. And of course, that gets to the reality that Mount Hermon is far and away the highest peak in Palestine. Now, what is happening here through the biblical text by the anointing of the Holy Spirit is there is a guided stepping back, as it were, in the interest of providing for your heart and mind a better view in terms of what God wants us to see. Now, you know how you yourself do that on occasion. You can be looking at something in a very granular way, something very close, and you're not perceiving what it's all about. My wife and son this past week went to the Museum of Science and took in the Monet exhibit. They didn't relate this to me, but I'm sure it's the case that you can go close to some of these paintings and see the brush strokes and the way in which the paint was applied. And that's interesting and informative, 
But it isn't until you step back and you see it in a more general context that you add to that appreciation the more generic view that makes the beauty of the picture. Now, it's all interrelated. Without those various various brush strokes, you don't have the picture after all. So coming back to Psalm 133, I want to support this statement and make the case that it's just amazing how God's Spirit has inspired this text, that there is a three-step movement backward in order to provide a better view of what God is saying if you don't get it from closer inspection. So consider how this would work for the Jewish pilgrim for whom this song of degree was originally written. Let's think of our Jewish pilgrim as encountering the ideas that this psalm speaks of on the 15th Nisan, which would be in our March, April of the year. That being the case, then, our Jewish pilgrim would have experienced the one-year-old unblemished lamb being already selected on the 10th of Nisan, sacrificed on the evening of the 14th of Nisan, its blood applied to the trim of the entry door, going back, of course, to its quintessential environment within the book of Exodus, but certainly something akin to that would be replicated in the celebration of the Passover and subsequent generations. The lamb was roasted in fire, and the lamb became the central victual within the celebratory Passover meal. Now, what I want you to sort of enter into along with me is this Jewish pilgrim who is reading this Old Testament text. He has already experienced these various details right in front of his face. And it all leads to this celebratory meal that they have together. There's song and there's happiness and there's fellowship and there's joy. And if you read the, stri- the stipulations that are associated with the celebration of the Passover, you will read that strangers are not allowed in the house unless they are first circumcised. No stranger was allowed in the Jewish homes on the night of the Passover unless they were first circumcised. Now, what I want you to think about adding that detail is there's a clear sense of exclusivity, isn't there? There's a bonding among the Jewish people in in the focus of this lamb that has been slain. And this lamb is the center part of their joy, although there's this ironic element to it that the lamb has been slain and his blood has been put on the doors and that protects us from the destroying angel and all of those various ideas. But I'm wanting you to hear that This psalm of degree, which was associated with the pilgrim feasts, and I've selected the Passover feast as a way of illustrating how an actual Jew would have understood this text and engaged with this text. All of the things that I just related to you, and of course much more, is a part of their experience. Now I want to to relate to you one such Passover situation that occurred in the regal years of Israel's history, this time 
under the administration of the 16th king of the southern tribe Judah. His name is Josiah. And you can read about this Passover in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. We're in about the year 625 B.C. Beginning with verse 1, we read the following. Moreover, Josiah kept a Passover unto the Lord in Jerusalem. David had already written Psalm 133. I suppose you understand that. And Josiah is reviving the practice of obeying God's word. And there's no doubt at all that the Jewish faithful pilgrims would be engaging with the Psalms of degree on this occasion, among them, the one we're focusing on, Psalm 133. So they're in Jerusalem, and they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Verse 2, And Josiah, who was God's instrument of reformation, not acting as a priest, he's acknowledging that Hilkiah is the dutifully ordained high priest, But Hilkiah, we're told in verse 2, set the priests in their charges. I stress that observation because I'm wanting you to appreciate the fact that along with all these other very colorful and interesting details that our Jewish pilgrim would experience in terms of traveling to Jerusalem, having the lamb selected, having it offered, and roasted, and being a part of the meal, what I'm wanting to specifically draw your attention to is the function of the priests within this Passover celebration. We are specifically told that Josiah set the priests in their charges. And I would suggest to you that it was not Josiah personally that set them in their charges and knew how to arrange all of these things. He had delegated that authority to the current high priest, a man by the name of Hilkiah. So our Jewish pilgrim, and I'm going to continue reading more out of Second Chronicles 35, but I want to say already, our Jewish pilgrim would understand and be conversant with the reality that this entire feast necessarily starts within the context of the ministration of the priests. And at the head of that arrangement is the high priest. And if he wasn't also himself a man of reformation and a man living out his calling faithfully, then none of this would have occurred. So his heart is rejoicing. And if he had spiritual perception and he would be aided to that spiritual perception from the very language of Psalm 133, he would realize that all of this blessing that is now taking place stems from God's religious arrangement, his ecclesiastical structure that comes right down from Aaron. So we continue to read in verse 2, and the and he set the priests in their charges in God's ordained arrangement and encouraged them to the service of the house of the Lord. We're in the house of the Lord. Every church that gathers in Jesus' name should be a house of the Lord Jesus. And the ministry should be encouraged toward the service of the house of the Lord and to do all things decently and in order, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of God. 
Verse 3, and he said unto the Levites that what? The Levites taught all Israel, which were holy unto the Lord. Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build. It shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and his people. Very interesting what this direction entails. It is the case, of course, that the testaments of Moses were contained within the ark that was to be placed in the Holy of Holies. And in the era of the wilderness wanderings, it was necessary that the ark included the rings through which the poles were strung or Pass through so that then the ark could be moved around. So it's wonderful that God's people can move from one place to the other and the word of God is always true and always real for wherever they are. But that possibility of finding a Bible wherever you go in the earth should not be misconstrued with the idea or the sort of feeling within your heart that we can move God around as we please. That God is so amendable to our current thinking that we can put him on our shoulder and just move that box around anywhere we want. Josiah is saying, stop moving God around. We've been doing that for far too many generations. Put him where he belongs. And I realize that ultimately this is an incredible illustration of the mercy of God. Because there's actually no way by which you can move God out of his place. But effectively, think of what's being said here. It's being said effectively, we need to come to this disposition of heart. Let God have his place. And I'm saying to you that we need to heed that along with Josiah. Because if you don't let God have his place, he's going to make you aware of the fact that he will put you out of your place. You either push God out of his place and find you need to repent and do as Josiah is saying here, stop carrying this burden on your shoulder. Stop feeling like you need to take God out of his place, whether the issue is unity or marriage or family. Don't put God on your shoulder and move him around wherever you feel he ought to be. God wants to be in his place. Verse 4, And prepare yourselves by the houses of your fathers after your courses, according to the writing of David, king of Israel, and according to the writing of Solomon, his son, in other words, according to the Bible, and stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the families of your fathers, of your brethren, the people, and after the division of the families of the Levites. So, kill the Passover and sanctify yourselves and prepare your brethren that you might do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Well, if you are our Jewish pilgrim, and this is all a part of this beautiful experience that you're having within this pilgrim feast when brothers and sisters 
within the family of Abraham are coming from the north and the south and the east and the west and they're gathering in one place to rejoice in the one true God and God is, is, uh, is as it were, allowed to be in His place. Like, don't push God out of His place is what I'm trying to say. And I'm stressing that because I'm emphasizing that we need to leave Psalm 133 right, right where it belongs as one of the primary definers of what unity should look like. Let God have His place. If He says it starts with a hierarchical structure, stop moving God around and saying that can no longer be true. And I'm saying to you that our Jewish pilgrim would have seen and experienced the centrality of the high priest and the Levitical order within this entire experience. Amen? So when the psalmist says, it is like the oil that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, down to the hem of his garment, I'm trying to say to you that our original Jewish pilgrim in 625 BC and in other occasions throughout Israel's history had something quite accessible to his spirit by which to understand what unity is all about. Now, the relevance of that to what I, what I am talking about as a primary point, that there is a stepping back, is because these two similes that of Aaron, that of Hermon, are explaining more effectively for those who haven't captured all the implications of the first statement, that unity is good and it is pleasant. I direct you to previous teachings as to what is implied there, though we will be making reference to it in just a moment to tie these things together. But listen to what I'm saying here. If you are a Jewish pilgrim and God, the Holy Spirit, who is all wise and perfect in understanding, is trying to teach our hearts, they first, the Jew first, and then all the rest of us, what unity should look like. If you didn't get it from that close stroke of it's good and pleasant, which is utterly critical to the picture God is painting, then God steps you back and he says, all right. Step back and consider the priest. Let's use Aaron. And let me show you this picture in more of a context that you can associate with. And the same lessons come from this picture. And then I point you, or I point you, therefore, to last Sunday's teaching, primarily in speaking about Aaron. And you see the same arrangement of the exclusiveness transferring down to the inclusive. So you have the moral before the moving, etc. Now when we come to this second simile, third verse, and effectively the third step, the first step was observing that it's good and pleasant. The second step is seeing how Aaron illustrates the same point. But it's more a general picture. Now we come to Mount Hermon. And this is entirely wonderful and beautiful to see how God has done this. Because while it is the case that the high priest and the points that God was making by pointing our direction toward Aaron 
would, as I've tried to indicate, be quite accessible to our Jewish pilgrim. That's not a stretch. If you were involved in this feast and you're paying attention, that was a pretty effective illustration. You might, in your generation, feel like it's not that accessible to you, but you can overcome that by going to the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, by studying to show yourself approved. But what I'm saying is, if you can't see it, these points that are critical to beautiful biblical brotherly unity, if you can't see it just in the statement that it's good and it's pleasant, if we take you a step back and say, okay, it's like Aaron, it's like the oil that ran down Aaron's head through his beard all the way down the hem of his garment. Do you get that now? And our Jewish pilgrim may well say, yes, wow, that's praise the Lord. I understand that. I experienced it. The priests were central to this. And then we all fellowship. Without the priests, none of this happens. It's illegitimate. It's out of order. It won't have God's blessing. It's man-made religion. It's God being pushed out of place, carried around at will. And then we call it unity anyway. Put God back in his place before you endeavor for biblical unity. But then there's this second simile, this third step back, even geographically, even locatively. It's a stepping back. As it were, you can feel that in your mind. It's like Mount Hermon, which would arguably be, arguably be even more accessible to the common Jew and certainly to the common man. The common man of their time, the proselyte, or for anyone over time, including ourselves, if you don't get the high priest and that arrangement, it doesn't speak to you. It's, you don't feel that. You're not sensitive to that. Then... This simile can help you. Let's step back and get an even wider view. You understand what I'm saying? Let's step back. We'll get away from Jerusalem, as it were, away from the narrowness, if you want to call it that, of the high priest and that arrangement and what's going on in Jerusalem. Let's step back and here. I'll give you an analogy that anybody on earth standing anywhere can look toward and have comprehension from. David is is effectively saying, let me make the same point with a different picture. That also can speak a thousand words. So I'll give you some of the parallelism between these two similes. One is under Aaron. The other is under Hermon. One is under the high priest. The other is under the high place. Under Aaron, the points are made in the context of special revelation. Under Hermon, the points are made under or within the context of general revelation. You see, the high priest and its ideas were only originally available to Israel because it's a spiritual religious arrangement. And certainly others can read Israel, Israel's text and see the wisdom of God as he told them, his word is, this is your wisdom. They could read this and come to an appreciation, but I'm trying to show you what the Spirit of God is up to here and how this is truly a stepping back and how Herman is a more general, more wide and broadly available analogy, but teaching the exact same principles of the good and the pleasant. The exclusive to the inclusive. The moral to the moving, 
So Hermon, being a mountain within God's creation, it doesn't require special revelation to look upon Mount Hermon and understand some of the implications of how it works within the ecology of God. Aaron and the high priest associations with Aaron speak to a classic arrangement among humans. Initially, of course, the Jews themselves. But Aaron is a human being, and the hierarchical arrangement is among other human beings. It is a human relationship image. And I'm saying, as I said before, that it is absolutely the case, as the Bible teaches, that unity must observe the triangularity that is presented to us, which we rightly state as a hierarchical relationship within God's order, or to state it differently, that when God arranges relationships among humans, they have a hierarchical aspect to them, even within the new covenant. And Aaron represents that image, and it's still relevant to our own time. But if you can't see that, or if you say, we need to X out verse 2 of Psalm 133, that's Old Testament, that's hierarchical, that's patriarchy, that's whatever it is. We don't like that anymore. We're the levelers. We want everything to be down flat. Then God in his mercy says, all right, if you're not getting it or you think it's irrelevant or it's not impacting your heart yet, or you think there's some way to wiggle out of this, let me step you back and show you the same thing from another picture. Herman is a classic arrangement within nature. So God says, if you can't see the hierarchical arrangement within a human configuration, let me just take you to the simplicity of nature. Can you see a mountain? Can we start there? Do you see that it's triangular in shape? Do you see that it has a peak? And we will say more about the way it all works as we work through this study and have already alluded to things in the course of these studies. Under Aaron, you have the anointing oil, which relatively narrowly speaks to that which is special and selective and redemptive. In other words, the blessing that biblical unity can experience, God says, must start from a proper arrangement and it begins like this anointing, this oil that came upon the high priest from the head who was called of God, sanctified, set apart, and then from the head it comes down to the body. The implication being, if you don't have a man properly in the position of the high priest, within whatever that position would be called in any human relationship, so if you don't have a king who is a man of God, then you're not going to see the prospect of unity within the family very well. If you don't have a father at the head of the home who is a man of God, upon whom through his sanctification the anointing comes down upon his head, through his beard, and to the rest of the family, then the prospects of unity are not very good. And you could apply this in the business world, you can apply this to even secular governments. If you don't have a president 
who is a man of God. Now, I'm not arguing for a Christian nation, but I'm, it's still true. I mean, we're not going to have a Christian nation, but that's why Jesus needs to come back to set one up. And when he is at the head of the world government, then there's going to be beautiful unity on the earth. That's your utopia, if you're looking for one. It's when you get the one at the top to be a man of God. And the more he's a man of God, the more the prospects for a beautiful biblical unity are there. But what I'm trying to show to you again is in the image of Aaron, the way this blessing and the flow works, it's in the relatively narrow imagery of oil in Aaron's head. And you have to sort of be associated with that and know those details and kind of get it from that picture. But I've already tried to make the case that if you were a Jewish pilgrim, and you had gone to one of these feasts, and all of this is happening right in front of your face, it's very likely you would get it. In other words, God was seeking to make his ideas known to man, and he still is. That's why I'm preaching today. Don't say you can't understand it. He's given you a minister to help you understand it. And that he wants you to understand it and to guide your thoughts so that you will go back to Aaron if you need to, to say, wow, that is valid. He gives to you the picture of Herman. And here, Herman's dew, which is associated with Aaron's anointing oil, that's not so narrow. You know what I mean? You don't have to be a Jew to understand dew. You don't have to understand the high priest. You don't even have to have gone to Jerusalem. You can just look at a notable mountain that has dew. This is common and creational, general. We could even say scientific, by which I mean the analogy with Aaron is in the context of redemptive history. It's in the story and the language and the narrative of redemption. But suppose you're not in that story or you don't know how to appreciate that story well. God gives you Herman and says, this is just plain science if you're such a genius out there. And I'm not, you know, I don't know what you know. I don't know if you know why I'm saying that. I'm trying to say, you know, if men were wont to just bow their hearts and their minds before God, we wouldn't need all of these similes. I mean, yes, there is a blindness in man, even in their best heart relationship with God. But the reality is that God in his mercy, like with Jonah, he speaks once, twice, three times, four times, four gospels, you know, the story. He speaks over and over again because men don't tend to listen. That's the mercy of God. So what I'm trying to say is that men who think that they can understand things better than God, that always want to improve upon God's idea, he's saying, look, even in science, you can just do some studies and recognize that if the dew of Hermon is not available to the plains of Jordan, you're not only not going to have a river, you're not going to have any fruit. That's the way things work. If you're going to flatten everything out topographically and get your bulldozer of modern leveling social ideas churning out and you just flatten everything, you're going to miss the blessing and you won't have fruitfulness. So again, to see how this is a stepping back, this second simile, we see that the idea, the ideas that are associated with Aaron are primarily available to the spiritual man. These are spiritual truths. If you're a spiritual man, you seek God, you can understand these things. But that which is associated with the picture of Hermon 
is understandable to the natural man. And so again, there is a threefold reinforcement of the principles that are critical toward the establishing of biblical unity. I know that verse 1 is where we start, so it might sound odd to think of three steps, but you will allow me to put it in that language. Three, incidentally, is an important number in the Bible. I'm not trying to force that. I'm just saying, as it happens, three is an important number in the Bible. And we do have three. Or if you want to get nitpicky about it, you can say it's a starting point with two steps back. But what I'm trying to say to you, again, is in verse 1, we have the point of the good and the pleasant. The moral must become before the moving. The ethical before the aesthetic. You could also say brains have to come before beauty. And that is biblical, by the way. I have to then point you back to a previous teaching. I don't know which number it was, but when we were stressing that there is a pursuit of beauty that is vain, that is pointless, that is driven more by carnal interests because we in our own hearts, which are distorted, we don't have the divine eye for beauty. And beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But your eye is dark and it's lustful and it's carnal and it's temporal. And what you think is beauty, God says, is vain. And so therefore you need your mind to be renewed. You need to realize that the wisdom that is from above is not first beautiful in whatever definition of beauty that you want to attribute to the beautiful. We have a church filled with all kinds of people and 25 people raised their hands and uh, 20 of them got water baptized today and whatever else you're claiming. And this is just beautiful. But did it happen as a result of speaking the truth to their hearts? If it did, then I'm in agreement. If it did not, then I'm not in agreement because the wisdom that is from above is first pure. It's first true. And so unity is first good and then it's pleasant. And this is reinforced in verse 2 where we have the head of the high priest before the hem of his garment. We illustrate this in a picture for the Jewish person. Do you not see within this arrangement that you just experienced in the pilgrim feast when you had some taste of beautiful unity? Do you not recognize the centrality of the high priest that this anointing starts from God's appointed minister and then flows down to all of us? And without doing this appropriately, it's just another form of idolatry like it was in the plain before Mount Sinai and it is not the unity that God is looking for. Divine order must come before human union. But that is, you might say, a spiritual lesson. You understand what I mean? Going back to what I was stating earlier, that that's something that the spiritual man, the initiated within the redemptive story could understand, the Jewish person. So we step back once more and it's reinforced again. This is what I'm stressing, dear friends. If it's true, it is making the point that God really wants us to get this. 
If you don't get it out of verse 1, he tries to tell you to you through a picture in verse 2. If you're a spiritual man, you should get it now. If you don't get it out of verse 2, then he steps you back to verse 3 and tells you the same thing again. Here it works in this way. The peak of Hermon comes before the plain of Jordan. I want to read something to you that I think is remarkable. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 6, we are told that there went up a mist from the earth and it watered the whole face of the ground. Genesis 2, Genesis 2.6 says there went up a mist, the water supply, the refreshment, the source of fruitation went up from the mist from the earth, from effectively the ground. And in fact, that is exactly what it means. It went up from the ground and it watered the whole face of the ground or the earth. But Genesis chapter 2 and that arrangement comes before the fall of Genesis chapter 3. The image of Genesis chapter 2 is absent mountains, absent hierarchical arrangements necessary for fruitation. It says that there was a general ecology whereby it was very peaceful, it was very level in its imagery, and a mist went up from the earth and it watered the entire ground, the whole flat ground. In fact, prior to the flood, we don't know that there were these massive mountains and so on that existed. But after the fall, the mist no longer comes up from the earth, but must fall down from the sky. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is a creational lesson. I understand that at some level there's also a spiritual insight within that. But I'm saying it starts with a creational lesson. It starts with the fact that if the plains and if the rivers are going to be supplied and if the trees are going to grow their fruit, then the rain has to come from above. And the only reason why that is so critical now is because after the fall, things had to be structured in such a way such that the work back toward God is not going to come from the general populace. If we level everything and we just take a vote and we try to appease and find an anointing at the, at the stratosphere of the valleys, we're never going to reach the purposes of God. We're never going to reach a true restored unity. I'll have more to say about that as we go on, so I will reserve some remarks for the time being. But I want to give you a little more information about Hermon and its picture so that it will form in your mind a bit more. Mount Hermon is almost 10,000 feet above sea level. It is about 9,200 feet above sea level. The highest mountain in Syria. It can be seen from many places in Palestine. That's important. Because anywhere you are, this particular illustration is available to you. If you didn't get it 
because maybe you're not spiritual enough to go to Jerusalem on the pilgrim feast, but God still wants to reach your heart. Maybe you're not spiritual enough to understand the unity of the biblical record and to see how in an appropriate exegesis and a rightly dividing the word of truth, we still can learn lessons from Israel's arrangement if we know where the limitations are. They're still very much available. All scripture, which when Paul wrote was the Old Testament, it can instruct you to the way of righteousness. But if you didn't get that, Mount Hermon is available wherever you're standing. If you're at least a close Close to the promised land, close to the things of God, even from as far away as the Dead Sea. Well, if you're even living in the Dead Sea and your spiritual understanding is quite dry and dull, you can still see Mount Hermon from there. Because snow covers Mount Hermon for much of the year. The Arabs call it the gray-haired mountain or the mountain of the snow. The waters from its melting snow flow into the rivers of North Huron and provide the principal source of the Jordan River. Below the snow, the sides are covered with trees, pine, oak, and poplar, and with vineyards. Its forests contain wolves and leopards, and sometimes Syrian bears. It is not a high summit with a distinctly marked base, but a whole cluster of mountains. Its three summits are nearly equal in height and are the same distance from each other. It extends 16 to 20 miles from north to south. Well, I must be selective with respect to various observations that interest me. I'll only make some brief remarks about that last statement about Mount Hermon. I would say to you that the fact of the matter that Mount Hermon is not indeed a mountain with a single peak is not something you would realize from a distance. And so what that to my heart illustrates again is that the use of Mount Hermon seen from a distance helps us in the most straightforward manner to get the basics of the principle. But even with Mount Hermon itself, as you draw nearer to Mount Hermon, you begin to appreciate some more of the detail of what's being implied here. And I'm not certainly going to make a place at this moment for the allegorical association of what we just read with God's triunity. If I was one of the early church fathers, I would do it in a heartbeat. But I'm a little more reserved in terms of very quickly just pushing these analogies to your spirit. But having made that remark, at least toward the interest of engaging your spirits in a joyful reflection, I will say to you, is it not interesting that Mount Hermon is one mountain, but if you get closer to it, it has three equal peaks. And I do say to you that we need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in order to truly enter into this beautiful biblical brother unit, brotherly unity. We need to pay attention to the plan of God, but we need to have more than just the plan of God. It is not the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of men. We need to come through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say even beyond that, then you need an axe to experience 
experience by which the Holy Spirit guides you into all truth so that the body of Christ or the family of God can give attention to all the Word of God and still find themselves speaking the same thing as opposed to speaking just a few things and those who are more open to God's truth, having to say a bunch of other things and therefore finding it difficult to have unity with all of their brethren. You need the work of the Father. You need the work of the Son. And you need the work of the Holy Spirit to truly come into the unity that God's Word presents to the family of God in our time. The view from the top of the mountain is is magnificent and covers a large part of northern Israel and Syria. In the south, the view covers the Gilead Mountains, the Jordan Valley, the Hula, and the Sea of Galilee. The scene in the west covers the Galilee, that is the region of Galilee as opposed to the Gilead Mountains or the Sea of Galilee. The Carmel Range, the Mediterranean coast, Tyre, and the mountains of Lebanon. What you should derive from that statement is how impressive this image is. And the spiritual lesson is the following. It is a shame if after all this effort that God has embedded into this text, the impressiveness of Herman and by analogy, the impressiveness of the, of the truth that he's trying to teach you from Herman is lost upon you. That's a shame. What bigger presentation could you ask of God to give you to make the point of whatever is true through the illustration of Herman? And surely something is true from it. It can be seen all over. When you were up on the top of Mount Herman, as our author just stated to us, You could see so far and so much and understand that the perspective that God is trying to get across to us is a perspective that enables you to see so much more and understand so many things about the ways of God. But if you flatten everything out, if you just push for some form of human commonality, forced human commonality, then you're not going to have the view about the way life works that would be available to you off of Herman. I want to add to you the experience of Henry Barker Tristram, an English clergyman who back in the late 19th century traveled to this very location. He says about the view of Herman, we had sensible proof. This is scientific, in other words. I mean, anybody can go there and check this out. We had sensible proof of the copiousness of the dew of Hermon spoken of in Psalm 133 and verse 3. Unlike most other mountains, which gradually rise from the lofty tablelands and often at a distance from the sea, Hermon starts at once to the height of nearly 10,000 feet from a platform scarcely above the sea level. This platform, too, the upper Jordan Valley and marshes of Merom, is for the most part an impenetrable swamp of unknown depth. Whence the seeing vapor under the rays of an almost tropical sun 
is constantly ascending into the upper atmosphere during the day. The vapor coming in contact with the snowy sides of the mountain is rapidly congealed and is precipitated in the evening in the form of a dew, the most copious we have ever experienced. It penetrated everywhere and saturated everything. The floor of our tent was soaked. Our bedding was covered with it. Our guns were dripping and the dew drops hung about everywhere. No wonder that the foot of Hermon is clad with orchards and gardens of such marvelous fertility in the land of droughts. What a powerful illustration God is making available to us. And so let me make some contrasts here in terms of questions that even having been given all of this encouragement from the text to begin to build a biblical mind about how unity would work. And as I've stressed and said in the course of these studies, I will state again that should it not be obvious that if you remove the peak, all of this goes away. If you remove the high priest, none of the rest works. Like it or not, that's a hierarchical arrangement. But somebody might ask, maybe this is just poetry ad hoc chosen at the whim of David. Why can't the simile be built from a plateau or a plain? Why couldn't the language of Psalm 133 verse 3 be, it's as the winds that blow across the Jezreel Valley. Why couldn't it be that? After all, if you know anything about the plain of Jezreel, the Gishon River flows through its whole length to the Mediterranean. The Jezreel plain was the granary of Israel. It's a very large and, impl- and impressive topographical image. It's 24 miles from east to west, 100 and, excuse me, 24 miles from east to west, 12 miles north to south. That's 192,000 acres. Why not say something like, it's like the wind that blows through the wheat in the plain of Jezreel? Well, dear friends, the answer is because it lacks the fine tuned divine arrangement that underscores the important truth that was always the case, but must be absolutely made clear after the fall. And that is that every good and perfect gift is from above and must come down from the patriarch, the father of lights. That's why it's as simple as that and it's as deep as that. It's as necessary as the reality that the earth is no longer supplied by its water from a mist coming up from the ground and then just resting upon the entire flat surface, which would stand for humanity in a condition of simple unity spread across the globe. That could 
potentially have been the way in which we experience life. But after the fall, God must choose an Abraham, as it were. God has emphasized the arrangement that was implicit in all of human society. I'm not saying that Adam was not the head of his home, as it were, in the original arrangement, but I'm saying, absent sin, then that distinction does not need to be reinforced over and over again because we're all speaking the same thing anyway. And in the New Testament, Jesus makes the case that when all of this is more and more redemptively manifest, then we will see that they who are in positions of leadership, they nonetheless conduct themselves as servants of all. And that the husband is to love his wife and serve his wife. And he is to make sure that he is not visiting the dry heat of a drought experience upon his children, but the dew of an anointing of love and the disposition of kindness. He is not to dry them out and discourage their hearts by misusing his divinely appointed place and becoming a patriarch. What we're supposed to understand in all of these arrangements, and incidentally, the language of patriarch is also used in a number of, or some ecclesiastic arrangements. Say Greek Orthodox, for example, they have a patriarch. I'm not digressing into all of that. I can't cover everything in one study. My, my careful remarks about patriarchy and what I intend and don't intend in stating those sorts of things, but I can limit myself to saying that what God has established is a theocracy. And even though there is a high priest and a human high priest within Israel's arrangement, that high priest was under the authority of God. What I'm saying is if Psalm 133 and verse 3 wanted to improve upon God's ideas and say something like, beautiful unity is like the wind that blows upon the valley of Jezreel and moves all the wheat in unison. It's got something of the same stuff. It's got this spiritual element like the dew or like the anointing in the wind. It's got the ultimate effect upon all of the wheat and so on. But it lacks the point that every good and perfect gift comes down. It's not within the people. It's not within your ideas. It's not within your abilities, brothers and sisters, in order to bring about this unity. When I posted last Sunday's teaching in the description of the podcast, I wrote the following. What does oil running down the head and beard of the high priest have to do with unity? Is the answer, nothing really. It's all about the fringes of his garment. That might be a bit unclear as to what my point is. But I'm coming back again to what God has set before us. And what I'm trying to say is there's a tendency in our times as it relates to this illustration, to get past Aaron in his beard and get down to the fringes of his garment. Unity is about all of us getting together in agreement. Unity doesn't start with headship. Let's just get past the headship. You know, what, what does oil running down Aaron's head? Well, that's just there. It's just there for, I don't know, who knows why. What unity is about is the fringes of his garment. That's where it's all wide. That's obviously where it's bigger and there's unity. Up there, there's no unity. There's just one man and one head. What does unity have to do with the peak of Hermon? 
Somebody says nothing. It's all about the valley where the people live. Unity. Let's get down to the people. Let's get down into the valley. Let's get down into society. And let's work out a social gospel. And let's get some unity that way. We don't need headship. We don't need divine order. That's archaic and it would be unproductive and otherwise forced. But no, no. The reality is, is that the Middle East has an extended dry season during which showers of rain are not common. Hence, the dew is a precious supply, often taken for granted in other climates. Let me give you some information. Jerusalem receives about 24 inches of rain a year. That's about the same amount of rain that London, England receives. However, Jerusalem has this 24 inches in about 50 rainy days within the year. London has their 24 inches in about 150 days. So London gets their rain over a long period. Jerusalem gets their rain in a distinct rainy season. What that means is that if we limit everything to the plains, then there may be occasions where rain is experienced because of God's mercy Spiritually speaking, His common grace, He reigns upon the just and the unjust. And there are seasons within which humanity continues to function and collectively get together and get along with each other and develop maybe a nation like the United States, which is not a, was not a spiritual nation, but there was some sort of rain, as it were, that came upon the founding fathers and they brought together something that eventually had the language of one nation under God. It wasn't ever a perfect arrangement, but they that were in the valley, those that were on the plain, they had something of the blessing of God and there was some sort of fruit and some sort of unity that was the result. But the human experience is like the experience of Palestine. There are long stretches of drought unless there is a supply from above to refresh the human experience. And therefore, we go back to the reality that Herman is a very fine-tuned arrangement as we've read already. I won't go back there, but remember the language about how that Herman just rises up out of the plateau to this awesome height and it's covered with snow so it's always preserving the possibility of refreshing showers and when the sun comes up and everything else would otherwise be dry and burnt up then that very reality produces the dew that then comes down so copiously to the valley right below Hermon and manifests the fruitfulness that is possible elsewhere if something of that refreshment can somehow get down to the lower elevations of Zion that does not have its own supply, even though it is the place where God's people dwell. And so this is similar to the fact that we need the power and blessing of God coming down into our life from above. And God has ordained His ministry under the Lord Jesus Christ's headship through whom this dew is administered down to the people. The fact of the matter is, while Israel has its limitations, more specifically Jerusalem, in terms of its 24 inches of rain within a very short, distinct period known as the early and latter rains, Mount Hermon 
All the while Jerusalem is getting its 24 inches, Mount Hermon receives 60 inches of precipitation every year. You know, there was a more copious supply of anointing upon the head of Aaron than ever reached the fringes of his garment, or it never would have reached the fringes of his garment. And whether you like it or not, there is a special anointing upon God's ministry, but it's in the interest of his people. There is more rain upon Mount Hermon, and that's a fact, so you don't want to level that thing out or disregard it, but it's in the interest of those of us who live in the valley so that our lives can be fruitful. Jerusalem would die of thirst without Hermon. Dew is moisture condensed from the warm air by the cold ground. It is important in Palestine, in Syria, for the prosperity of cultivated crops and natural vegetation. From April to October, there is little rain. So dew is essential. God didn't make the illustration about the early and the latter rain. That wouldn't have the same image. That would carry the image of just a supply from God, which is always true. The dew is from God. But there's an instrument within the equation. The instrument here is a mountain that you cannot disregard by simply saying it's a part of the created order. Therefore, it's evil. Therefore, I don't need it. Therefore, I don't need to pay attention to it. That's fantastical. That's silly talk. That's sophomoric. That's a silly philosophy. The Gnostic and other arrangements that denigrate the created as if they can exist without it. While you write your silly philosophy, you eat your hamburger or you would die. God has ordained Mount Hermon, an instrument. God ordained Aaron the high priest. I understand that Jesus is our perfect high priest. And that's a meaningful analogy and fulfillment. But as I've already shown you, and as you should know, that under the headship of Christ, he ordains men into the ministry that operate in a similar capacity as Aaron did. And it's critical to Christian unity. So dew is essential for the continued flourishing of vegetation. In some of the wilderness areas, the heavy dews, are the primary source of water for the natural vegetation, crops, vineyards, and even for small animals. Do water is absolutely essential. And it's that supply that comes from above that teaches us that one of the reasons why we do have such a parched Christian witness is too many think that they can just go anywhere in the valley they never even need to come to a true house of God. They can just have church. They can just worship God at some tree or some location or just go to somebody else's dwelling in the valley and they'll get a fresh supply of anointing and they don't have to pay attention to a supply that you can't get yourself unless it's mediated from God to something placed by God above you that has a more copious supply than you do on your own. And it's how God gets into your life more of his water, more of his anointing, more of his power to help you to grow. And you might think, as Samson once did, 
that I've had an experience of power. I've read the Bible on my own. I prayed and God gave me a blessing and an anointing. And I defeated the Philistines. I overcame a trial. I can carry on now for the rest of my life without paying attention to the appointed ministry. But you've forgotten the lesson of Samson's life. In Judges chapter 15, we read about Samson experiencing a great deliverance against the Philistines, but then he despaired that he would die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. There's a spiritual analogy here, my dear brothers and sisters, because the churches of Jesus Christ, little realizing that whatever genuine fruit they can presently claim has come down from above. It has come down from God. And it was ministered to you through His appointed instruments, whether it was Moses or Aaron, or whether it was Abraham or Isaiah, or whether it was Paul and Barnabas, or whether it was Augustine or Luther, or whether it was Whitfield or some other instrument of God who, relatively speaking, has brought truth and understanding to our hearts. And what I'm saying is, like Samson who was relatively heedless and carnal, but experienced something of the anointing, I'm saying the people of God have had some experience of some power over history against the spiritual enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, but then have felt like they can go on in their own strength and do their own thing. And they wind up having to cry out if they at all understand what is going on. Cry out to God, God, I'm going to die of thirst unless your arrangement works for me again. And when they do begin to die of thirst, you know what you see. It's the most amazing thing. When once the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God had a powerful testimony and was able to overcome the world, the flesh and the devil and to live a Christian life of holiness and separation and be a light to the world and a salt to the world. And they could be anointed like Jesus who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with them. They no longer can do it because they're dying of thirst because they've taken their attention away from God's arrangements. And as a result, the very things that they once defeated are now defeating them. What will God's people do who hunger and thirst after righteousness if the snows upon the peak of Hermon dry up Are you one of those within the house and family of God today? You hunger and you thirst after righteousness. Do you not see how this image is teaching you exactly what Aaron is seeking to teach us as well? But if you understand yourself as related to this picture, then you are like the land of Palestine. You have your seasons of rain. But if you truly desire and thirst for righteousness, you're not going to get it all on your own. You need a man of God ministering to you the dew of heaven in your dry seasons. And if you dry up the ministry or you flatten out or take away those peaks out of your configuration of what brings blessing to you and you sit at home by yourself or you disregard what it takes to truly have an anointed man of God in your midst, then the People of God that truly thirst for righteousness will die of thirst. They will perish for a lack of knowledge 
according to Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, because the broken cisterns of the valley prophets can hold no water worth drinking, according to Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Oh, these cisterns that you can find a plenty down in the valley, down among the people that anoint their own prophets and establish their own schools and raise up their own preachers and pastors, not men who, like Moses, from a call of God, have ascended up to a place of receiving from God the true dew of heaven and then dispensing it down to God's people. No, you're going to die of thirst when you really face the trying times of these last days because these broken cisterns cannot hold the true water of God. They do not have the wine skin for the true wine of God and you will not find it from their source. They are broken cisterns and not in the best sense of the term. Broken through not being first healed through redemption from Almighty God Himself and they won't be able to supply you with water. The language of Romans makes this clear that we need the peak of Hermon. We need the ministry of Aaron. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved or any other need that you have in your life. You see there in the 13th verse, there's a prospect that's available within God's arrangement that you could call upon the Lord and the Lord would meet your need. But that's not going to happen automatically just because you fill rooms full of people and you give them a self-help positive message and try to mentally convince them that all of their desires will be met and all of their needs will be satisfied. Oh, that might work if you're in America and you can minister to their carnal interests. But when the sun rises up, when the dry season comes and they really need to be saved, then you're going to have to pay attention to the arrangement, the fine-tuned arrangement that Herman speaks of. Mount Hermon speaks of. Verse 14 goes on to say, well, how will this ever work? How will they call upon the Lord? How will they reach this prospect of salvation? How can they call on Him on whom they have not believed? You won't know what to believe. You won't know how to relate to God because believing fundamentally is a relational interaction. And so the Bible goes on to say, and how should they believe on Him on whom they have not heard? What if you haven't heard all that you need to know in order to effectively believe? believe in God to get your need met. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And this is not the preacher of Jeremiah 23. It's the preacher of Jeremiah 3. Not the preacher of those that destroy God's flock, but the preacher who is after God's heart. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall the dew come without the peak of Hermon? How shall the anointing come without the head of Aaron? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Well, hallelujah, there is a message in itself which certainly 
has been stated. It is absolutely critical to everything I'm saying. I'm not talking about some man who sets himself up and anoints himself and moves God around at will. I'm talking about a peak that God alone could have established in the image of Mount Hermon. And I'm talking about a man whom, who God knows by name, like Aaron was, who is just a man after all. He is an earthen vessel, but there is a treasure that is of enough supply within this individual that the overflow comes down to the body of Christ. As it is written, the text goes on to say, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Do you see how this fits in with Psalm 133? You need a preacher. And it's amazing how the Spirit of God inspires the quotation of Isaiah 52 and verse 7. And I don't know why it leaves out the mountain element in verse 15 of Romans 10. But I will shorten my remarks by just bringing you back to Isaiah 52. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, your God reigns. I don't know if you sense what I'm trying to say here, but what I'm talking about is you're looking at a instrument of God who is upon the mountains, who is at a higher elevation in terms of his spiritual relationship with God. And I think it's interesting that it says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15, how beautiful are their feet? Because that's where their life meets the ground where others are. But by the appointment of God, they've been upon the mountains. Their feet have been upon the higher places. And their head is even higher yet. When they come to minister to you, their life meets the ground of where you live. And they tell you, as it were, what God has been saying to them. But their head has been up into the communion of God and inevitably has much more within it than it can pass on to you. And that's just the way God has ordained it. And it is beautiful in our eyes because it's the Lord's doing. And it's precisely in keeping with what was shown to us in Aaron. You get down to the fringe of the garment when you enter into the blessing, but it started on his head. It gets down to the valley of Jordan where the dew is so copiously Placed, but it started on the top of Mount Hermon. It's for this reason, dear brothers and sisters, I want to say in closing that such texts like Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 are very critical to how Christian unity is brought about. Verse 17 reads, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your soul. That's the do. That's the care of God. That's the anointing and the understanding and the wisdom of God that they don't have natively in themselves. We're all saved out of a life of sin and confusion. Paul was killing people, thinking he was doing God's service. But when God knocked him off his high horse, he could have left him just as a brother in the church, and Paul would have been happy to be so. But God called him by his grace, and he took a man from way down low, 
God took this low man, this Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, who could have wound up like the Saul of Benjamin of old. He, by his grace, took that man up, and he's the one who says, God sets in his church as he wills. And Paul says, is everybody an apostle? The answer is no, but God set Paul up, and he said to the Corinthians, you might have 10,000 people that come to you as if they're teaching God, but you don't have many fathers. How can he say that? When God said, don't call any man father, because he's not setting him up as a father, as a starting point. He's saying, I'm under God, and I'm administering to you under God's headship as a proper fatherly figure should. I encourage and charge every one of you as a father doth his children. I administer to you the dew of heaven from the heights of Hermon, and my feet have been on the mountains, and my head has been in the clouds. And I have a copious supply of dew for your lives. It's called Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and everything else that he did by word and by epistle. Obey them that have the rule over you if they're men of God and submit yourselves to them for they watch for your souls as they they that must, must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Well, I need to close this afternoon. We will be re-engaging some of these ideas as the Lord allows next time we minister. But I feel as though I should close this afternoon, and I do so by reminding you of a beautiful passage from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which in my estimation, it doesn't capture everything that we've been saying, but it does make a beautiful, summarial, spiritual remark about much that we have been emphasizing. I read to you Paul's words, and we beseech you, brethren, we beseech you, ye who have the possibility of being brothers together in unity. How does he get toward that? We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. I won't hesitate, though I feel maybe something of a hesitation that can our culture and our times handle this forthright statement, but I will make it and say, to know who the errands are among you, to know where the peaks of Hermon are among you, know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love, knowing as the Jewish pilgrim would, if this high priest was not in place and dutifully functioning as a minister of God, then this experience that we've just had would not have taken place. As the citizen in the Israeli territory would know, I love Mount Hermon. It stands over me and admonishes me about its critical need to my life and that doesn't bother me. I love it because it's looking after my soul and it's working on my behalf. And no, the new engineers of our time are deciding that we're going to plow down Mount Hermon and we're going to dismiss the errands and we're going to level everything down to a democratic religious experience. But the one who understands these things is saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that. I esteem this very highly in love. I see what God is doing. I see how this is working. And you see what Paul says, the outcome of understanding 
the proper way to go about this becomes. This is not just an appendix, a piece of gum stuck to the previous verse that should be just sort of pulled off and discarded. He says, and be at peace among yourselves. There are so many religious works that get propped up through human ingenuity from the plateaus of men that rise up quick, but they never have a deep peace because the blessing of God is not commanded within that arrangement. But the place where peace can really happen is when there is someone who who is called of God, who serves God in humility, who preaches the whole counsel of God, who honors the headship of Christ and preaches with that elevated authority, but always in the context of the deference of God's word. And under that arrangement, God's sheep knows this smells right. This sounds right. And I can submit my heart to this because this is not about men. This is about God. And I can find peace and I can submit my heart and humble my will to this arrangement. That's where unity can really take place. I hope you'll come back for more because there's more to be said. But for now, may God bless the word to your hearts in Jesus' name.